1: We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
0: You heard her. Go subscribe.
1: Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, And what fuels them to keep creating it all starts by asking one simple question where does your story begin welcome to uncorking a story now here's your host mike carlin
2: well hello and welcome to uncorking a story i'm your host mike carlin and today i'm excited to introduce you to colin dickey colin is a writer speaker and academic who has made a career out of collecting unusual objects and hidden stories all over the country. He's the author of multiple books, including Ghostland, An American History in Haunted Places, and The Unidentified, Mythical Monsters, Alien Encounters, and Our Obsession with the Unexplained. He joins me today on Uncorking a Story to talk about his latest book, Under the Eye of Power, How Fear of Secret Societies Shapes American Democracy. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Colin. Hey, thanks for having me on. Happy to have you here, Colin. I'm curious, where does your story as an author begin? Where does my story
0: as an author begin? I mean, I think, I don't know, um, watching Young Guns 2 when I was like 12 years old um, was the moment. I think I, like, I'd seen that movie a couple times on cable. And um, just one night I, I, I got really into this idea of just like writing Western. So I just, I, I went upstairs, took my mother's Smith Corona electric typewriter and um, wrote like a two-page Western like where I sort of included all my friends um and we all got shot at the end. Um
2: and um so right. So it begins there. That's
0: sort of the young end.
2: Young Guns too, I mean that's the one where John Bon Jovi did he did the entire soundtrack to that, right? Yeah. Yeah, that is the John bon Jovi
0: one. Um it is in retrospect in, inferior to Young Guns one, I have to say. Um I think um I, I still maintain, and this is a this is a weird fact um, that of all of the cinematic representations of the Lincoln County War, Young Guns remains the most historically accurate. Um, and um, so I, I I don't know I stand by that movie, but uh, yeah, that's 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 where it started. Young Guns too. So
2: there's a, there's a song on there. I, can't, I think I don't know if it's "You Really Got Me." I, I can't remember. But I it, if I look at my high school yearbook, I graduated 1992. I have a quote from a song from Young Guns, too, and it, it just makes me cringe every time I look at it. My kids are like, Why do you have this in here? And I'm like, You don't understand. Like, I was. <laughs> them's, them's were the times. I mean, I, my high school yearbook had like Jack Kerouac in it, you know?
0: So I don't know if that's a significant improvement. I think, <laughs> again, I'd probably take Bon Jovi now over
2: Kerouac. Um. Well, tell me about um that western. I mean, did you did you did you film it, or did you just act it out? No, no, it was just a short story, and it was and
0: you know, at the time I was reading um Stephen King incessantly, um and I was I was sort of I had read by that point more or less like everything Stephen King had in print, um and I really wanted to be Stephen King, so I I I almost immediately started writing like horror stories, horror fiction. Uh, through most of my high school years, I would come home every day and either play bass guitar or, um, or write stories and just churn them out. Um, just really, you know, uh, derivative knockoffs of, of Stephen King or whatever else I happen to be reading, uh, Lovecraft or whatever, but I just kind of kept on churning and churning them out. Um, and I did that through most of my high school Years until at some point I started writing poetry instead. So I kind of like I came to nonfiction very late. I was going to be a fiction writer for a
2: very long time. So yeah. Well, tell me what's your fascination with um, with all things kind of unexplained.
0: I mean, you know the the thing that I for me it was like growing up in 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 a suburban landscape in San Jose, California. Growing up where everything looked the same, there was nothing to do except play like little league sports or go to the mall. Um, it was just this kind of boring, dead, flat capitalist landscape that I just hated. Um, and yeah, by the time I, you know, again, it started with Stephen King, started with like, you know, the, the premise of a Stephen King novel, you know, more or less is this idea that there's something, you know, there's a darkness at the edge of town. There's something sort of beneath the surface, something lurking, something that is sort of actually, you know, terrifying or wrong or uncanny. Um, and I think that really resonated for me as someone who just like looked out at the world around me and just like, was like bored out of my skull. And, you know, as I, um, as I started sort of branching out, reading other things, uh, you know, and I discovered the beats uh, where, you know, like Kerouac, you know, when I was like 16 and, and again, this idea that there was this kind of subterranean landscape of, you know, uh, drug users and queer people and criminals and poets and that kind of thing, I think really appealed to me i think i've always sort of been like fascinated with like the the world below the surface and um yeah it took a while but eventually it kind of came out through these these last couple of books i've written which are sort of just various ways of looking at you know kind of the invisible world whether or not it's like ghosts or ufos or bigfoot or you know the illuminati like the you know all these books have in common this idea that there are these things that are sort of operating at the margins or below the surface or in sort of these invisible ways that, um, you know, have an impact on culture. And again, I'm not interested in proving or disproving, well, I'm interested in disproving a lot of conspiracy theories, but I'm not interested in proving or disproving ghosts per se, or I, you know, Bigfoot, I don't really care about whether or not he exists or not, but I am interested in sort of how these things affect mainstream culture, even though they sort of exist kind of in like, you know, kind of fringe culture.
2: You remember it's probably in the the late 80s, mid to late 80s. It was Time Life books. They always had these, you know, book series. They had uh Mysteries of the Unexplained. Do you do you remember those? Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean I remember those. I remember like yeah, those commercials
0: were always on TV incessantly like the you know a a uh woman burns her hand on the stove and you know 500 miles away her twin sister cries out in pain. You know, like that yes. I,
2: still,
0: I totally remember that commercial. <laughs> Um yeah. And like, you know, like I always remember Leonard Nimoy, uh that Leonard Nimoy show in search of Oh yeah, um, it was great. Yeah. That stuff was like really, really kind of popular in the 80s. I mean, I guess it's always popular. It seemed sort of popular in the 80s, but then by the 90s it had just become the X Files and, you know, now it's sort of resurging on, you know, Instagram and all this stuff. So it, it never really goes away. But I, I definitely remember the form it took in the in the 70s and 80s, the kind of thing you would watch on like you know, TV on a Saturday afternoon,
2: or you would see these these commercials for these Time Live series. I was, I, when I was a kid, I was like scared to death of a few things, right? So one was Killer Bees. Um, another was Quicksand, and I was disappointed. I've never actually come across Quicksand. But a third would have been like being abducted by aliens. Like I was scared to death as a kid that that I was going to get beamed up and, you know, anally probed or something like that.
0: Sure, yeah. I mean, um, well, first of all, wait, does Quicksand... Exist? Can you actually drown? Like, I know I've not come across it, but like,
2: is it a thing at all? I mean, it was on Gilligan's Island, right? You know, yeah. I remember like, and like various like stories that I've seen, but yeah, I, I don't know that it actually exists in nature.
0: Yeah. I'm um, so,
2: okay. So scratch that one. Um, Killer bees. That's, that's legit, right? You can, you can die from killer bees. You right? can. They just haven't, they haven't come to my neighborhood yet, I guess is what yeah. I'm saying. Like I, I yeah. haven't been, you know, face to face with uh, killer bees.
0: Yeah. And alien abductions. I mean, sure. Yeah. No, I, a friend of mine had, um, that Whitley Stryber book communion. Um, and I remember like, I mean, like it's, it's been written about that cover. That cover is so iconic. It's so like perfect in, in what it does. And, um, for some reason I, I didn't read that book as a kid, although I remember being sort of fascinated and like horrified by it. Like it was sort of so, you know, but like, yeah, I think like a kind of foregone conclusion that these, these abductions were real, they were happening. Um, that just sort of seemed to be part of the zeitgeist, but I don't, I remember at one moment I sort of stopped caring or stopped believing in alien abductions. Did you, did you ever like grow out of it? Or are you still afraid of you it? No,
2: no, I'm not really afraid of it anymore. Um, because, you know, the, the older you get, you know, you watch the And I'm still like captiv, captivated by the shows, whether it's on like Discovery Channel or whatever. And then you realize that, like all of the people who claim to be abducted have something in common, which is usually that they're batshit crazy or they've got some kind of substance abuse problem. Um, you know, they're they're alone in the woods. No one else is with them. So you kind of like, OK, well, I'm I'm not so sure that this is legit. And. And I, I remember coming to that conclusion when I was reading Sammy Hagar's autobiography mm. and he talks about an alien encounter he had. And on the next page, he talks about dropping lots of acid. So sure. Yeah. Who, who knows? Who knows? But
0: yeah, I mean, I'm trying to remember, like I remember like there would be these TV specials. Like, again, it would be like Saturday night at 8 p.m. on, you know, CNN or not even this was sort of pre CNN. Uh, but, you know, like whatever, like sort of reputable TV channels. And it would be like, you know, the alien autopsy or like Harry 51 exposed. And I would get pretty excited about them. But like, but they're like even then, I mean, I was like, you know, like a you know, junior high or maybe like a teen, you know, in high school at the time. And even then, I sort of was like, well, there's no there there. There's no, like, it's a lot of like smoke and mirrors and like, you know, some grainy footage, but like, and you know, they would kind of end with saying, Who knows if it, you know, like there's more to come. But I was like, I, I didn't see any they're there. And I think at some point I just kind of was like, you know, like, I mean, I've been telling people recently, I was like, you know, if, if UFOs exist, you're not, it's not going to be, we're not going to find out about it because one lone whistleblower goes to one news reporter and it gets written up in one newspaper. If, if, if UFOs exist, you are going to know about it. It is going to, they are going to interrupt everything. They're going, you know, it's going to be wall-to-wall coverage. It's going to be all over social media. Nobody will be able to talk about anything else at all. And so I think, yeah, like even from an early age, I was sort of just like aware of the fact that like, this is not how like news stories are, are like are broken. They're not broken by like a Saturday night special that hints at a thing and then you never hear about it again, you know, like that's just, that's just, so anyways, yeah. So that's, I think, you know, my thoughts on that. For right well, now.
2: let's talk about Under the Eye of Power. Uh, what can you share with us about uh, your latest book? Uh, I can share lots of things. What would you like to know about it? Well, just give me, give me an overview, you know, give me a, what's, what, what's it all about? Yeah. So
0: again, like, you know, so I'd done this book, um, Ghostland, An American History in a Haunted Places, which was about haunted houses, haunted, you know, hotels, prisons, whatever, and sort of why why some buildings are haunted and some aren't, why we tell the stories that we do, why are so many stories in uh, America about, you know, quote-unquote haunted Indian burial grounds, that kind of thing. And then I, I went from there to my last book, The Unidentified, which was, you know, Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, and other cryptids, but also aliens, alien abductions, that kind of thing. Um, and again, like, the through line was this kind of idea of, like, kind of things that were hidden or invisible, but yet still and sort of unprovable, but still had a sort of effect on American culture. And so um, from there, I think like the, you know, um, when I was when I was uh, moving out during my divorce, a friend of mine sort of helped me move and um, we were sort of driving this U-Haul and he just sort of said to me, he's like, yeah, it seems like the next book is on secret societies. Um, And I had I had a lot of that material left over and I hadn't figured out a way to use it um but i i sort of finally kind of clicked a few months later on this idea of the way in which we sort of hypothesize and sort of fantasize about these um secret societies some of which are real but harmless some of which are real and maybe not as harmful as we think some of which are completely fabricated um you know everything from you know the freemasons to the illuminati to you know, sort of anti-Catholic and anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, as well as, um, you know, kind of other things I wasn't expecting to kind of, uh, delve into, but I, I wanted to kind of chart the way in which, um, America's sort of American democracy and specific specifically has been kind of influenced from almost the very beginning by the way we think about these like secret groups who are operating the levers of power behind the scenes, um, mostly imagined mostly sort of fantastical conspiracy theories some little bits of truth here and there though
2: right like uh like uh what was the one that was mentioned um in what was that mike myers movie uh so i married an axe murdering the, the pentagram oh, yeah, right? The Pent- the Pent- right. Yes. right
0: yeah uh the the gettys the Rothschilds, the queen uh What's the fourth one? I can't remember. The uh, the Vatican and Colonel Sanders. Colonel Sanders.
2: It, sorry, up. Those beady yeah. little oh. eyes. Right. But yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Puts an addictive chemical in his chicken that makes you crave it fortnightly. I mean, yeah, like that, uh, you know, who doesn't, who doesn't believe that theory? Right. So, yeah. So, um, so I wanted to kind of understand like how those, those theories kind of got their start and what they do for us as Americans. Like why, why do we come back to them? Why, um, how, you know, how they evolve, what, you know, where do they go, that kind of thing. So that's kind of what the book does. It's sort of historical and sort of starts with the founding of the country. Um, cause I think like, I think like a lot of people looked at 2016, saw a presidential candidate who was openly espousing conspiracy theories, uh, about, you know, secret groups like the deep state. And were like, wow, we've never had this before, never seen this before. Um, uh, but in fact, we, you know, we have, you know, um, you know, George Washington was one of many people who thought that the Illuminati were responsible for the French revolution. Um, Abraham Lincoln rose to power by successfully arguing that there was a secret cabal of slave owners who had corrupted the government from within. Uh, Nixon was a famous anti-Semite. Uh, Hillary Clinton believed that, uh, the government had more information about aliens that they weren't sharing. Like this is, you know, this is a thing that that crosses party lines and has sort of been part of American politics since the beginning. And so I wanted to kind of present that historically to sort of understand how these things came about and what we might be able to do to kind of stop them or something like that.
2: So like, you know, I think about things like natural selection, right? So there are traits that we have that that live on because they they serve some kind of a useful purpose. What is the useful purpose of a conspiracy theory? I mean, it does, you know, uh,
0: a conspiracy theory does a bunch of different things. It does different things to different people. Some of the through lines, I think some of that are are really important is um, a conspiracy theory gives like a shape and order to the world that might otherwise seem chaotic or random. So um, if you believe that um, the world world events are are determined by a secret group who meet in a boardroom wearing pinstripe suits and chomping cigars, um, and are are sort of determining things. And maybe maybe they're the Rothschilds. Maybe they are the Illuminati. Um, you know, whatever that that's that's scary. That may be you know terrifying to you, but it but it actually may be more reassuring than the idea that everything that you see out there is just sort of a random chance. You know, I mean, I think that um, what conspiracy theories do is they make things make sense. And, um, particularly the ones that I looked at in the book, I mean, like, again, like, a you know, kind of, kind of famous and notorious and, and sort of vile examples, antisemitism, you know, and the way that like the way antisemitism is structured, it accounts for any possible, uh, event of the day. Um, because, you know, the anti-Semite believes that the Jews are, are both like, you know, purely malevolent, purely pernicious, but also um, impenetrable. Their, their reasoning is impenetrable because, you know, I mean, the two, two, of the sort of main cliches associated with anti-Semitism are the fact that they are, um, rapacious hyper-capitalist bankers, and also that they are anarchist Bolsheviks. Um, you know, and the fact that these two are, these two characters are totally opposed to one another. They're completely at odds. You know, I think it speaks to the levels of the way anti-Semitism works as a conspiracy theory, it's 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 supposed to be convoluted and contradictory because then anything can be attributed to to the Jews, and and that's sort of how these things work. Um, so that's I think one one thing that conspiracy theories do. I think the other main thing they do, and and what I talk about a lot in the book is that they um, they're very useful for um, pushing back against social change and and attempting to delegitimize. Social change and social movements. So, um, again, uh, this is another sort of you know vile example, but I think it's a sort of obvious one that speaks to the point. Um, dur- during the civil rights era, you had people arguing that Black Americans were not interested in their liberation, were not interested in equality, were not interested in being treated like equal citizens. That in fact, the whole thing was a put on by uh, Bolshevik Jews. You know, again, as another sort of anti-Semitic sort of version of things, but it's it's a way of delegitimizing um you know a progressive social movement and you and i saw that time and time again throughout the book that like um these conspiracy theories get used to push back against demographic change um you know societal change whenever a, a group of americans or or an immigrant group tries to assert um you know their rights and their visibility often it's met with various conspiracy theories that that try to delegitimize that movement and that's You know that's something obviously we're seeing right now with the kind of you know obsession with um you know quote unquote groomers which is a response to um you know lgbtq americans and particularly trans americans sort of asserting their rights and their visibility
2: yeah you know it's it's like gaslighting on a on a massive scale right so yeah yeah exactly yeah um but i mean they do speak to like an emotional they pull an emotional lever right and And sometimes I think, okay, well, maybe it's it's people who are perhaps less intelligent who fall for these things. But that that's probably not the case, is it? No. Oh, no. And I think that's a
0: common misconception. And the thing I wanted to really address in this book is I think that. Yeah, the assumption is that somebody believes in a conspiracy theory because they're they're ill informed or they're stupid um, or they're irrational. And I don't think any of that is the case. I I mean, I certainly think there are stupid people out there who believe in conspiracy theories, but I don't think that's what makes you a believer. I think what a conspiracy theory does is it um, it solves an existential or an emotional or intellectual need for you, and that it allows you to overlook the facts and construct the world in a way that's, that's pleasing or reassuring or affirming to you. And I think that, A, both crosses, partisan divides. I think people on the left are are very what about the fact that they, uh, they sort of see themselves as smarter and more enlightened. And I, I don't think history shows that. But it also really doesn't matter about one's education. I, get, I mean, again, you know, people like Nixon, who are sort of famously, you know, educated elites who are also anti-Semites. Like it really, it's, it's really less about one's sort of intellectual capacity or education and more about um, someone's emotional need that drives them to find what they're looking for in a conspiracy
2: theory. Yeah, And it's, I'm sure they're not just a tool of like the right or the far right. I'm sure the left has had their. Share of conspiracy theories as well, I'd imagine. Oh well, certainly,
0: and like again, like um, you know, they they take different forms. Off, you know, obviously, and like I think on the left, you're more likely to see sort of government conspiracy theories. Uh, although now that's shifting uh, with the quote unquote deep state. Um, but you know, for the long t- longest time, you know, the idea that that the government was sort of uh, doing nefarious things, which again was sort of based in fact. You know, I mean, I I talk a lot in the in the book about the CIA and the FBI. Um, and, and sort of what they were up to in the fifties and sixties that sort of created this, um, kind of perpetual distrust, this idea that our government sort of cannot be trusted, um, by, you know, members of both the, the left and the right. Um, but the other thing is that, um, um, you know, there, the other sort of form that, you know, left conspiracy theories often take is sort of corporate malevolence. And again, that's sort of based in fact, I mean, you have the tobacco lobby, which is sort of a good example of an actual literal conspiracy. Um, but you know, it sort of has, has evolved and morphed to, you know, you will hear people talking about Monsanto, for example, sort of a famous sort of, you know, bugbear for the, for the left as something that, um, goes beyond just a sort of crappy corporation who's out to make profits above, um, you know, any consideration for people's health to a thing that is sort of somehow ubiquitous and omnipotent and omnipresent sort of doing horrible things on, on an almost sort of supernatural level
2: yeah and then you know I, I, thinking about like more recent times you know with COVID and the vaccines you know these conspiracy theories that you know people like bill gates and all these people at high tech are are funding these vaccines for population control or something like that it's uh it's it's pretty it's pretty wild. I mean, I guess there's no as long as there's creativity in the world, there's going to be some interesting conspiracy theories out there. Um, yeah, I mean, sure. Yeah, this is you know, this is not something that's going away anytime
0: soon. I think, again, the the discourse of the last 10 years has been, by and large, um, people wanting to believe that this is a, a result of social media it was a result of Cambridge Analytica it was a result of algorithms at Facebook uh, or whatever sort of pushing these these beliefs on us. And while I think that um, social media is, is wildly damaging in a lot of ways, it is, it is not the sole culprit here. Um, A, because we've had these conspiracy theories, as I, as I discussed in the book, since the founding of the country, if not before, and um, B, because they do something sort of emotional and intellectual that's satisfying for us. And I think that the solution is not going to be in just sort of lambasting Facebook or, you know, maybe you know attempting to craft regulations that probably will never get passed anyways the the solution is more in sort of understanding what drives us to these things in the first place and how we can sort of
2: combat that on a more kind of interpersonal level right yeah they're 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 vehicles for distribution, but they're not you know they're not they're not why these conspiracy theories get created I mean that yeah. is, and yeah. the, the, if they go away something else will just take take their place. I mean yeah I was curious you were mentioning you know the, the a lot of conspiracy theories arise from like making, trying to make sense in in sort of a senseless world. Um, and th- to me, and I don't want to compare conspiracy theories and religion because that's maybe not a hundred percent fair, but that's really the role religion played um in earlier societies. I would imagine is trying to, to create some, some kind of order out of disorder or chaos.
0: Yeah, sure. And no, and I think it's not an unwarranted comparison at all. Um, the the philosopher Karl Popper is the guy who coins the the phrase conspiracy theory, um, and he does so in 1947, I think. Um, the line being uh, the conspiracy theory's uh, vision of society happens when you get rid of God and ask what's in his place, right? So again, like you know, this idea that the Illuminati or whomever are um, behind the scenes pulling the strings and are responsible for anything that happens on a day to day basis, um, and can be used to explain anything from the success of Beyonce to why I got a parking ticket. Um, you know, that's, that's, I think that's a theological proposition. That's, you know, you're basically, you're proposing that the Illuminati have supplanted God as, um, an explanatory mechanism for the way of the world. And so I think it's, it's, it's very sort of like theological and it's, it's, um, in its appeal to people.
2: You yeah, know, I didn't know much about the Illuminati until I I read one of those Dan Brown books, and then it seems like every book that had followed, not necessarily Dan Brown, but a bunch of authors around that same time, they were all just sort of interested in in the Illuminati or maybe he jump started like thinking about it again. Um, what 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 is the the basis of the Illuminati? I mean, what what when did that come into? Um, Existence, I should say, like the conspiracy theory around the Illuminati. Um, So the Illuminati
0: are um, a, a group that existed briefly in Bavaria, Germany. In the 1770s, um, they sort of advocated women's rights and atheism and birth control and all these things. And um, they didn't get very far before the Bavarian government got wind and uh, suppressed them. And that was the end of the Illuminati. They, they were, they, they had ceased to exist by the end of the 1770s. Um, but what happens is in the wake of the French revolution, um, you have, you know, this sort of glorious experiment in democracy that suddenly goes haywire that, um, you know, it ends up bloody, it ends up violent, it ends up catastrophic and chaotic and um a couple of people a, a french priest who's sort of trying to understand what happened to his catholic country uh and a scottish freemason uh sort of uh simultaneously argue that what happened with the french revolution was actually the 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 mechanism or the the machinations of of the illuminati that somehow they survived and are um you know responsible for this and so that um becomes a really sort of useful explanatory mechanism for, um, world events that otherwise seem chaotic or unexpected or unpredictable. And so, um, you know, it, it, the, the theory moves almost immediately to the United States, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, George Washington is among many people who think that the Illuminati are active. Uh, The Alien and Sedition Act is um, passed in part as sort of response to the fear that foreign saboteurs, including the Illuminati, are going to be sort of infiltrating America. Um, And by 1800, which is our first after Washington's two terms, like our first uh, contested presidential election, um, both Jefferson and Adams have, uh, you know, supporters who are basically alleging that the other guy is a stooge for the Illuminati. And so our, you know, our first like real presidential election, um, is, is already one sort of riven and beset by conspiracy theories.
2: So where, where do we go from here? Uh, it's like, where, where, you know, how, how can we, cause I, I do think that these things are, you know, can be very dangerous. Um, you know, just talking about antisemitism alone. I mean, that, look, look what that's led to, um, what's how how do you how do you stop it or at least sort of squash it a little bit
0: yeah i mean you know for me a couple of things i mean i think that um sort of the first thing is as we were talking about before to recognize that it's not about just being stupid or or ill-informed and so if you you want to kind of work on somebody you can't just like browbeat them with you know facts and data that actually doesn't work because it's it's not what they're looking for um, and I think it's, it's more about sort of understanding what the emotional pe- appeal, what the emotional drive is for that person and um kind of deprogram- deprogramming them almost, you know, one at a time, sort of trying to sort of understand how to, how to kind of like replace whatever the conspiracy theory is doing for that person with, you know, something else that's maybe a little bit more. Uh, grounded and then you can kind of gradually bring in the facts and kind of wean them off it. But, um, but, you know, I think, I think the road ahead of us is hard. I think there's a lot of work to be done and uh, I don't think it's sort of like uh, patient, difficult work. And, you know, it's something we got to kind of get started on.
2: Well, there we go. Uh, One of the ways I like to get to know my guests a little bit more is through pop culture. So I'm curious, Colin, when you were growing up, what were some of your favorite things to watch on TV? Uh,
0: I don't know when I grew, when I was growing up, God, I can't remember. I watched so little TV now, um, at the time, I mean, I don't know. I remember more of the movies that I watched. I mean, I watched, I was like in love with like, you know, Batman and Indiana Jones, nothing particularly interesting. Again, I was just kind of a suburban kid. I was just kind of like whatever I was fed at the time. Trying to remember anything special, but not coming up with anything. What
2: about a favorite King novel? Um, yeah, I mean, when I was a kid, uh, definitely. I think
0: The Stand was always my favorite. Um, as I got older, I really came to appreciate his short stories um, because they didn't have happy endings. They didn't have, like, resolutions. The short stories are the ones that that really, like, messed me up. Um, there's a stor- short story called The Jaunt, which remains kind of one of, like, the most
2: terrifying things I think I've ever read in my life. Um, so yeah, I haven't read too many of the short stories, um, but I loved the stand that was uh yeah. I mean, that's that's such a such a great one, and it, for the most part, I liked, yeah, uh, that got a little weird at the end, um <laughs> but yeah, you know. yeah, no i I loved the
0: the remake or at least the first the f- chapter one of that remake from a couple years ago. I thought that was really great,
2: yeah. Yeah. better than the one with John Ritter and uh who else was in that uh, uh John, John Boyd- I me. Mean, Tim, Tim Curry as, Tim as pretty Wise was always yeah. great,
0: but um, no, I thought I thought the new one was was really great. I don't know, it it left me with like a really just like it's kind of perverse to say, but just like a really like solidly good feeling. Like I came out of that theater just like feeling great about the first one. The second one was
2: fine, but the first one was really fantastic. So yeah. What about a favorite place to read? Do you have a favorite place you like to read?
0: Oh, I do all my reading and writing in cafes. I just you know I like a. I like to wake up and go get a coffee and sit and read and
2: you know kind of watch the world go by. So, that was, that was that was my next one which was a uh, favorite place to write but but also yeah. a cafe. Yeah. Uh what about music growing up? I know you played bass, but what what were you into listening what were you listening to?
0: Oh, um I listened to a great deal of Iron Maiden. Uh I mean metal generally, but you know Iron Maiden was uh was the be all and all and still still as as far as I'm concerned. So. favorite
2: maiden album
0: oh um i mean controversially seventh son of a seven son i'm 100 percent. I, I mean it's 100%. Just, i mean it's not it doesn't have the same level of iconic classics as number of the beast and power slave but it it is a no skips you know and it it you know it's just it's perfect all the way through Yeah,
2: oh, man, infinite dreams if if i ever had a, a boat i think but, i would name it infinite dreams yeah yeah but so yeah. that's that's probably not going to happen. But if I did, Infinite yeah. Dreams, maybe the big picture of Eddie. Yeah. To, yeah. We'll I like it, yeah. Pirates would not screw with me. Um, and then last but not least, if you could uh, sort of go back in time and whisper some words of advice into your younger self, what would what would you uh, what would you tell uh, the younger Colin? Uh, it'll be fine. <laughs> that's, I think, what I would tell my younger self. Yeah kind of reassure them were you uh anxious back in the day or i don't know i just was unhappy yeah so you 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 won't always be in the suburbs kid yeah exactly yeah (laughs) very good well uh guest today has been colin dickey his book is under the eye of power how fear of secret society shapes american democracy colin where can people pick up this book oh you can pick it up wherever wherever fine books are sold um you know it should it should be out out wherever you wherever you would like to buy a book it should be there there you go and then uh Colin any social media uh handles or websites you want to share with the listeners if they want to follow you
0: yeah i mean um uh, my website is just colindickey.com um i'm mostly these days on instagram and blue sky i basically abandoned twitter as it's become a, a mess um and i i got off facebook years ago but i'm uh, yeah i'm pretty easy to find on instagram uh, just colin dickey and if you if you happen to be on blue sky i'm i'm also colin dickey uh so you know people can drop by and say hi
2: there you go well colin thank you for stopping by uncorking story and letting me uncork yours
0: yeah thanks for having me